Well, this evening we are um, in, back in Matthew 12, and we're actually going to be finishing up that chapter, which is also known as the controversy chapter in Matthew's Gospel. Well, one of many controversial sections. Uh, but so far, we've seen Jesus in this controversy with the religious leaders over things like Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. We've seen him in controversy with the religious leaders about spiritual authority, about how it is that he does the things that he does, and how it is that he controls uh, the evil spirits and casts them out. And tonight we're going to look at um, the controversy over the leadership's desire for signs, trying to get Jesus to prove himself. Now, each of these controversies, it might even sound a bit like a broken record, they keep coming back to the same thing. Each of these controversies reveals what is really in a person's heart. And so it should be reflecting back on us each week as we hear these stories. Our our hearts open to Jesus? Are our hearts and minds open to what Jesus commands? How Jesus plans to rescue us? Tonight we're going to see the danger in not taking Jesus seriously, but we're also going to see the amazing good news of what happens to a life when we do take Him seriously. I invite you to stand again. Um, this time we're going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes it find, and finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that person becomes worse than the first. That is the way it is with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered. He said to the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lord, we pray as always that by your Holy Spirit you would open up our minds and our hearts to what it is that you would have us uh, hear and respond to. Lord, open up this text which has been passed down for centuries and centuries. Centuries. 
I pray that it would come alive for each one here in just the way you need them to hear it. Thank you for your word, Lord, that is more than just a story, but is life-giving. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the previous section, Jesus warns the religious leaders about their hardness of heart. If Jesus, as he's been presenting himself, is the Savior and King that they've been waiting for, and if their hearts are hard toward him, then they cannot be rescued. They, in essence, close themselves off to the very source of life who's come to rescue them. Now, in our passage this evening, some of the scribes and Pharisees failed to open their hearts to Jesus. Now, think about what he's been doing up to this point in the Gospel. He's been healing numerous people. He raised a person from the dead. He calmed a storm with just saying the word. He cast out demons from people and still they were not convinced. Still they were seeking for a sign, for further proof. Last week, three people tragically were killed as a result of Asiana Airlines flight that crashed into San Francisco. So far, the report is showing that there's no mechanical failure to the plane. The pilots believed that the auto landing sequence was turned on and active. They trusted that it should have set the speed, just the right speed for landing. They trusted what they wanted to be true, what they believed to be true, and certainly what they hoped to be true. But what was actually true, what was glaringly obvious, was something very different. For example, the visual indicators, the, the runway has lights that tell you how fast you should be going. They were saying you're going too slow and too low. Their airspeed indicators in the flight deck were saying too slow. And even untrained people who were sitting in the seats report now, it just felt like we were going too slow and too low. All of that empirical evidence was staring them in the face and yet they trusted on what their heart was set on trusting. The auto landing technology. Now there's a book out there that some of you have probably heard of. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It's an attempt to show the validity of the Bible the validity of who Jesus is and various theological issues. And it's an interesting read. But what I found is that books like Evidence That Demand a Verdict are more interesting people uh, to people who already believe in Jesus or they're effective for people who are actively seeking Jesus but just have a few questions about things. I've hardly ever heard of anyone who is vehemently against Christianity or have a hardened heart toward Jesus who read evidence that demands a verdict and says, I'm going to change my entire worldview now. People with hardened hearts toward Jesus rarely make a wholesale change outside of their hearts already being opened. People change on more than just information, is the point I'm trying to make. Those pilots had all the information, but they were convinced about a, a different course of action. A lot of people in the world have all kinds of information. We know that drugs are bad, but people still do it. We know that smoking kills you, but people still do it. It's not the information that's the problem. So something in our hearts. 
People change when their consciences are already being burdened. That's an emotional value. People change when their doubts are already being exposed. Even the Apostle Paul. So this guy is persecuting the church, sending people to jail, standing by uh, complicitly while Stephen is stoned. Okay, So he gets a, a sign from Jesus on his way to Damascus. And you would think that, oh, it was just a sign and a wonder that caused Paul to convert, right? But we learn also from the book of Acts that Paul for a while had been kicking against the goads. The suggestion is that Paul was conflicted already in his own heart. He already was conflicted about who Jesus was and was pushing that back. He was wondering already if Jesus was the Messiah, but he had been resisting. Now, the religious leaders in our story demand a sign from Jesus who had been doing such amazing things already. What is it that they were looking for? What was it they were asking for? What more could you do but cast out demons right in front of somebody or, or raise a person who is dead? Well, during the first century A.D., there were several would-be messiahs. Uh, scholars call them messianic pretenders. And we actually have written accounts of what the, popula- what the population uh, thought would happen when the messiah would come. These aren't from the Bible, but it's kind of what people just had, had written in their own kind of folklore, what they expected a messiah to do. One of the things that they expected a messiah to do would be to cross through the Jordan River and have it stand up in part, kind of like what Joshua did when he conquered the promised land. So maybe they wanted Jesus to go cross through the Jordan River and do something spectacular like that. That's one of the common things that they thought. Another expectation was that the Messiah would go out into the wilderness just like Moses did and take a group of followers and do a bunch of miraculous healings out in the wilderness. Maybe they were expecting Jesus to do that kind of sign. But the last time we see someone demanding a sign from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is in the fourth chapter, and it is none other than Satan himself. And so we're already tipped off as we read Matthew as a whole that asking a sign from Jesus beyond what he's already given us is almost a satanic uh, request. So Jesus says the only sign they're going to get from him is the sign of Jonah. Which is kind of a cryptic thing to say. Uh, it has at least two meanings. The first meaning, uh, of course, is a poetic reference to the idea that Jonah, who is in the belly of the, the sea monster for three days, uh, as good as dead, was then miraculously puked up. Uh, that just like that, Jesus would go into the belly of the earth, be dead, and then in three days and three nights come and be resurrected. It, that's the sign that they were going to get. And actually... In Acts 17.31, uh, we read that some of, from the sect of the Pharisees actually did repent and become followers of Jesus after the resurrection. So that's the sign of Jonah. But the second meaning, and the only meaning I think the Pharisees would have understood at the time, was an indictment against their hardness of heart. Jonah, the Jewish prophet, was sent by God to one of the most vile and violent cities in the ancient world, Nineveh of Assyria. 
The Ninevites were ruthless uh, to the Israelites. They were Israel's enemy to the core. And Jonah, so God calls this prophet Jonah to go preach a message of repentance to them. He's like, there is no way I am going to Nineveh. I hate those people. So he gets on a boat, you know the story. The storm comes up, he gets thrown overboard. And the sea monster swallows him up, spits him out. Where? On the coast on the beach by Nineveh. So he's a fine, I guess I'll go preach to these guys. And Jonah's message isn't even like, hey, I've got good news for you. The kingdom of God is at hand or anything like that. His message is, turn or burn. Like Jonah's the original guy with the sign with the flames on it. Okay. Two interesting facts come from that reference to the sign of Jonah. First, there is zero evidence that the Ninevites knew anything about Jonah's encounter with the sea monster. Because in that story, that's the miraculous event, right? Like he's in the belly of a giant fish or whatever it is for three days, doesn't die, gets spit up and is okay and is saved by God. There's no evidence that the Ninevites hear about that story. And that leads us to the second interesting fact, that these pagan idolaters uh, of Nineveh repented, put their trust in God just because of Jonah's sermon. No signs, no wonders, just this Jewish guy coming in and saying, hey, people that hate us, God's going to judge you unless you turn from your sin. I hope you don't, because I don't like you. And they do! Jesus' point then is that even the Ninevites repented at a mere sermon, and here you are hardening your hearts toward God in the flesh, toward your Savior. And not only have I preached to you, and not only has John the Baptist preached to you, but I performed more signs and wonders in your lifetime than other previous generations have ever seen. What is your problem? Open your eyes. That's the point of the sign of Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is standing right before you and you're talking about more signs. Even the pagan queen of Sheba traveled all the way from present-day Ethiopia up to Palestine just because she heard of the wisdom of Solomon. She paid homage to Solomon and exalted The God of Israel, Yahweh Himself. And Jesus is saying, something greater than Solomon is staring you in the eyes. I'm right here and you're missing it. Let me tell you how this is going to go down. In the judgment, the Queen of Sheba is going to judge you. The Ninevites are going to stand in judgment over you, scribes and Pharisees. The Magi from chapter 2 pagan astrologers from the east who came, they're the only ones who worshipped Jesus besides the shepherds. Herod, the king of the Jews, tried to kill Jesus. The magi from the east come and worship Jesus. They will be raised in the end and stand in judgment against the scribes and Pharisees. Wow! that's That's a striking thing that Jesus is saying to these people. And it sounds kind of, kind of unreal. I mean, it sounds so powerful. How are they not getting this? But I think this desire for signs uh, marks at least two warnings for us. And the first is that there's a danger that we spend our time and energy looking for signs, looking for the sensational. 
let's face it, we are a sensual people. We, we long to feel, and I, and I would even say there's nothing new, that's a human thing, but you know, the, you get these cliches about different generations, right? And one of the, the things, I, I, my grandparents' generation, the builder generation, my, gra- he, my grandfather just, I don't even know if he feels at all, but he does things based on duty, and thank God that he does, they, they make the world go around people, uh, but th- he does things based on duty, but... For several generations now, I would say we're more, more feeling. In fact, you talk to people today about their career and it's all about follow your heart. And if I don't feel into it, I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, I want out of my marriage because I don't feel in love anymore. I want a new job because it's, it's too stressful or hard to feel good about everyone I work with. And I think in our lives following Jesus... We can get duped into thinking we're doing well when we feel like praying. We can be deluded into thinking we're doing really well spiritually when we're in a worship service where certain songs make us feel good. Or when certain gifts of the Holy Spirit make us feel ecstatic. The problem is when we're constantly seeking for the sensual in our spiritual life, what happens when those feelings go away? Because if you've followed Jesus for even a few months, you know that it's up and down. That that's life. And you can't always be feeling these sensations. And so if, we're, if we use our sensations as a, as a thermometer for our spiritual life, then what happens when we don't feel it? Oh man, something must be wrong with me. God must not love me anymore. The late Dallas Willard writes about this danger in his wonderful book, Hearing God. He warns us that in Scripture, oftentimes it is the less mature people who get the more spectacular signs. So when he first approaches Moses, that's when you get the burning bush experience. That's pretty spectacular. And then when he's trying to give Moses confidence to go confront Pharaoh, he does all these amazing signs, his staff turns into snakes and all this stuff, right? But at the end of Moses' long relationship with God... It's, this, it's the still small voice. You know? And oftentimes, when we're less mature in our spiritual life, God will really need to get our attention. But just because you don't have spectacular things happening all the time doesn't mean that you're missing out on God. Maybe God wants to speak to you in a different way, in a still small voice, in a mature way. That's not to say that God won't or can't reveal himself spectacularly, but his most spectacular sign is already given. You know what it is? It's the resurrection. Yes, it's the resurrection. And in the resurrection, Jesus, uh, he forms the foundation of who we are. It is the resurrection above all other things, above all spiritual experiences. It's the resurrection that gives us hope. It's the resurrection that gives us power for living now. So if you're feeling disconnected from Jesus and are waiting for the feelings of a special sign, let me just ask you this, in a most humble way, I'm preaching to myself as well. How are we using the gifts that God has already given us to connect with Him? How are we doing at meditating on the God of Scripture? Instead of looking for all this amazing signs and wonder stuff, What are we doing with the Word of God that He's actually given to us? How are we doing it at relationally connecting to Jesus through prayer? 
Just, just a question. Like if, we're, if we're looking for the big deal, what about, when's the last time you just talked with Jesus without just asking Him for stuff all the time? And are, are we engaged in the vessel of salvation, which is the church? Are, are, are we actually getting involved, getting to know people, serving alongside our brothers and sisters? Or are we just snackers coming in for a snack and then leaving? If you're standing on the sidelines, waiting for a sign to get in the game, guess what? The invitation's been made. Get in the game. The further you get in the... I don't even like calling church a game, but the further you get involved in the life of the church, the further you're going to experience the life of Jesus. The second danger of seeking for the spectacular is that we may miss the small and amazing signs of God's grace that He gives us every day. Now, we are a people, I think, uh, most of us, some of you are spectacularly positive, but most of us are prone to pay attention to the negative much more than we are to praise the positive. Uh, We take it for granted when we feel comfortable, but we are quick to recognize when we're too hot or when we're too cold, like in this building right now. We have cars with dual zone AC and heat so that, you know, your wife who's sitting like, or whoever... Eight inches from you doesn't have to be the same temperature you are. And some cars have tri-zone, right? So the kids can have their own little zone of atmosphere or something like that. Uh, we're quick to, uh, to complain when our food isn't done just right. But we don't say, yay, we have food when a third of the world doesn't have anything. Or, gosh, this new shirt itches. The tag is such a bore. I have clothes on my back. You don't hear people talking about that very often, but we complain a lot. What if all the little signs of God's grace were His primary way of wooing us, of expressing His love toward us? Listen to this amazing quote by Friedrich Buechner. Who knows how the awareness of God's love first hits people? Every person has his own tale to tell, including the person who would not believe in God if you paid him. Some moment happens in your life that makes you say yes, right up to the roots of your hair, that makes it worth having been born just to have happen. Laughing with somebody until the tears run down your face. Waking up to the first snow. Being in bed with someone you love. Whether you thank God for such a moment or thank your lucky stars, it is a moment that is trying to open up to you your whole life. If you turn your back on such a moment and hurry along with business as usual, it may lose you the whole ballgame. If you throw your arms around such a moment and hug it like crazy, it may save your soul. How about the person you know who, as far as you can possibly tell, has never had such a moment? Maybe for that person, the moment to have happen is you. That's a beautiful quote. What if the little pleasures in life, the things that we take for granted, what if we turned our, our thinking to say, that is a gift from a loving Father? Who's trying to open up our hearts and our imaginations to how generous and good, how his will toward you 
is overwhelmingly positive. It's the reflective life that opens our eyes to see God's gifts of grace around us. And if you're recognizing the truth and the fact that, yeah, I complain a lot more than I recognize these good things, let me just give you a simple little thing that I've been trying to practice. At the end of each day, what if you recognized three things you're thankful for? You don't even need to journal it. Helps if you do. But what if you just by your nightstand put three things on a piece of paper and before you go to bed, before you put your head on your pillow, what are three things that you're thankful for today? Watch how it opens up. God, you have been gracious to me today in in light of all the other stuff that happened to you. Because let's be honest, bad things happen almost every day. But overwhelmingly good things happen as well. Okay, back to our passage. Jesus is under no illusions that the scribes and Pharisees are going to suddenly get it because he gives them the sign of Jonah, right? So he goes one step further and he gives them a stern warning. He warns them of great danger, the great danger of not responding to his presence. You see, wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. So... In his presence, evil spirits can't abide. He's clearing the house. Wherever Jesus is and his disciples, you know, demons are flying out of people because he's casting them out. They just can't abide in his presence. So he's clearing out the house. He's doing some spiritual uh, spring cleaning. Uh, but when he died and was resurrected, his, his presence, that kingdom of God presence was distributed or is distributed through the Holy Spirit into your hearts who believe in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus and have been baptized, you have received the Holy Spirit, His very presence. You are a walking temple of the living God. If those people fail to believe after Jesus has left, then what happens? He straightened up their life. Maybe He's healed. Look at all the people that Jesus healed. There's those, uh, in one story, there's the ten lepers. He heals ten people with leprosy, cleans their house. One guy turns around to thank Jesus. I don't know what happened to the other nine. Maybe they were just ungrateful or maybe worse. Maybe they didn't give Jesus a second thought. What happens? What happens when we just receive the good gifts of Jesus but we don't actually follow him? This passage is not a lesson on how demons work so much as it is a lesson on how we are made. I'll say that again. This part about how you know, the demons go out and then they come back with seven other buddies and make it worse than before, it's not so much a theological discussion on demonology as it is a point about how you and I are made. Genesis 1, 26, 27 tells us that you and I and every man, woman, and child are made in the image of the living God. We are made to be filled with the God life. Every person is made to be filled, and you're made to be filled with the God life. But through our rebellion, we have forsaken God, filled ourselves with all kinds of substitutes. While Jesus is present, evil can't stand. But after he cleans up the house and puts it in order, will we invite him to stay? Will we abide in him? Or will we open our hearts, our vessel, our lives 
to whatever or whoever comes along to fill it. We're made to be filled. You're either filled with the Spirit of God or you're filled with other stuff. I remember in high school... There were some kids who found this beach house, and they were partying in it uh, every weekend. The owners didn't live in town. Uh, eventually, the cops found out, and they, these kids had just trashed the house. Uh, they made a few arrests, but everyone was afraid to go there. Well, these people from out of town spent a lot of money fixing up the beach house. They changed all the locks. They got better windows that locked, uh, and they painted all the inside, new furniture, all that stuff. But... They didn't get a security system. They didn't get a house sitter. They left the house cleaned up, but not filled up. And just like the sand people, the kids came back and in greater numbers and parted it down really, really badly. Uh, Many of us have had an experience with Jesus. Maybe you remember the time that Jesus first filled your heart. Maybe He gave you freedom for a period over a certain addiction or a habit. Maybe He made your heart sing. Literally. Like, I remember when Jesus first gripped me, just uncontrollably singing worship songs. I, I, I was in the Coast Guard uh, and I, I was doing hazmat stuff and, I, and my, in my SCBA and I kept fogging up my mask because I'm singing these songs from church. It's just, you know how it is, like you just get filled up with this amazing I love Jesus life. But Jesus is not a machine. He is a person. He's not an insurance policy. He's not a spiritual version of Mary maids who shows up every once in a while to fix little things and then he leaves for long periods of time. If we're not abiding in Jesus, we run the risk of, of living empty lives. And empty lives are, are made to be filled. So, what is the warning here? Do we open ourselves up to demons? Well, yeah, you can invite uh, that type of thing into your life. But there's more than just demons. There's more than just a danger of demons. There are no lack of idols or alternate gods out there. Some of you are familiar with the German word uh, zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the times or spirit of the age. The zeitgeist of our age and culture is, is multi, uh, manifold, but uh, uh, one of the things is an obsession with our autonomy. We talk about community a lot. We like to live in community, but we really like our own autonomy and space. We... Community is fine if you don't tell me what to do. Uh, we, uh, the zeitgeist of our age is seeking comfort. We've made comfort, security, Allstate commercial, all those kind of things. Uh, pre- getting what we want and protecting what we have. That's the number one thing in life. Uh, uh, materialism and consumption is part of that. I think there's uh, the zeitgeist of the fallacy of neutrality or an open mind. If I can just stay open to all my options, I'm a much more uh, worldly person. I'm more mature. But we've learned from Jesus over and over again these past few weeks that there is no neutrality. You're with me or you're against me. You're filled with me or you're filled with something else. Because we're made to be filled with something. We're in danger, Jesus warns, of filling our hearts with other things but the Holy Spirit. Dale Bruner writes, and this one's... It's home pretty good. Few realities are more more vulnerable to demonic attack than middle class life. Precisely because this life is so empty, vacuous, and passionless. Ouch. If we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, engaged in Jesus' church and His mission, we are going to be filled and engaged in other things. Seductively good things, and yet empty things that lead ultimately to discouragement and apathy 
and death. Now, Jesus knows his audience really well. He's a Jew just like they are. And he knows that probably the Pharisees' minds are turning off about now. They've been hearing these very difficult things to say. And he knows that they're probably falling back on what most good Jewish teachers would always fall back on. Our ethnicity. Ah, All you're saying is good and challenging, but at the end of the day, I'm an ethnic child of Abraham. I'm in the club. I'm safe. I'm one of God's people. And who would be safer than Jesus' own blood relatives? I mean, Jesus is the Savior. Who would be safer than Jesus' mom and his brothers? Matthew doesn't want us to make the same mistake. So he tells us the story of Jesus and his own family. While Jesus is speaking and teaching to this crowd, his mother and his brothers show up. Mark's version of the story in typical Markan fashion is much more detailed. Uh, It's a better version. (laughs) And and we learn from Mark that the crowds are sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. Sitting at the master's feet is a posture of openness, of listening, of receiving the message. They're inside the house listening to Jesus. Jesus' family is outside the residence and they are standing. Standing at best is a physical posture of indifference. If I could take it or leave it, I'm checking this out, but I'm not fully committed. Or at worst, rejection. And what we know from Mark's gospel is that Jesus' family came to take custody of Jesus. They thought he was off his rocker. They thought he had gone insane. The things that he was saying about himself, they came to apprehend him. To them, Jesus is a son, a brother, a responsibility. He's not yet become their Lord or their King. So always one to make a point out of everyday circumstances of life, Jesus asks the question, Who is my mother, my brothers, my sisters? It's kind of a a loaded question. In the ancient Near East, there is no other answer than your blood relatives. There is nothing thicker than nationality and blood in the ancient Near East. But Jesus is redefining the boundaries of family. The boundaries have now shifted. Blood is thicker than water, but faith and obedience in the Father is thicker than blood. Earth shattering. This would have rocked the world of the crowds and of Jesus' family, of the scribes and the Pharisees, and it ought to rock our worlds too. First, the warning. Don't think, because you grew up in a Christian home, that you're automatically following Jesus. Don't think, because you warm a pew a couple times a month, that you're automatically following Jesus. Don't think, because you prayed the prayer of repentance a long time ago, and figured your life is on cruise control now, that you're actually following Jesus, and can just do whatever you want. That line of reasoning not only is absent from the Bible, but is in direct conflict in many points in the Bible, including this verse in the chapter right here. Jesus makes his point in no uncertain terms that those who do the will of his Father 
are His true family. Now before you freak out and be like, oh, that's too hard, um, what is the will of the Father? First, we know from Matthew 17, 5, the Father says this, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. I have a bit of good news right now. When a preacher preaches the preacher's sermon, you're listening to Jesus right now. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's what you're doing right now. That's a really good thing. Second, John 6.40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes, or uh, another way of saying that, trusts in Him, will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I don't know if you caught how good of news that is. That means that the overarching will of the Father is that you and I and every created person would be saved and have eternal life in Jesus. Another way of saying that is that it's God's good pleasure, His heart's desire, that we would trust in Jesus in such a way that it leads to eternal life. That's what God wants for you. That's... Uh, you th- just think about it. I'm sure Ryan, the philosophy professor, has all kinds of ways to say I, I just, I'm too simple. I just marvel at the fact that, okay, there is a God. I didn't get to choose that. He could be any way he wants to be because he made me. But he's like this. That the God that we have is overwhelmingly for you. His desire is that you would be rescued through faith in His Son. That is incredibly good news. He doesn't come up with this, here's what you got to do, this is my will. His will is that you would put your trust in Jesus and have eternal life with Him. Jesus is giving us, in His resurrection, the ultimate sign. Sign, A sign that leads to eternal life. And I think another beautiful thing, something we talked about in our small group this week, uh, is that the way salvation is described here, you notice how it's not described in a way that's transactional? Here, I'll I'll, I'll, uh, buy these people. It's not described in a way that's a courtroom, although that's frequent in the New Testament. Um, When we trust and obey, when we listen to Jesus, we are nothing short of part of His family. Isn't that a beautiful way of expressing salvation? Of expressing being rescued by Jesus? It's not just this transactional thing. You do the right stuff. You pray the right thing. It's the Father being like this saying, Come, through Jesus, join my family. Brothers and sisters. Well, here we are. I'm in the same boat. You are listening to the Son. The question is, how will we respond? That's always the question when we read Scripture. Uh, so join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word that brings life. Thank you for being so gracious with us for knowing our stubbornness, for knowing our fears, and yet time and time again revealing yourself to us and inviting us uh, to place our trust in you. Lord, I'm thankful that you know 
each one of us intimately. And you know that if there are a hundred people here, there are a hundred different places our hearts are at. I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would help us to take that next step toward you. That you would help us, Lord, to open our hearts more fully to your spirit. We want to be filled with you. And maybe some are here who can't say that. Maybe their prayer is, we want to want to be filled with you. Lord, hear those prayers. I pray that you would smash down the walls that that, that keep us from receiving you. Lord, help us to fully embrace the new life that you give us. Amen.